In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. The government doesn't care about aliens. <laughs> Just ask Rwanda. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. If you want real healthcare reform, vote with your Nielsen box. Watch more house. Anything goes with Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Hey Paratopia, Jeff Ritzman here. Just wanted to give a bit of a disclaimer before tonight's show with George Hansen. If you'll remember, George Hansen was on our show before uh, discussing the trickster in the paranormal. That's been some months ago now. And you can find that, uh, that episode on our homepage. If you go back maybe one or two pages, you may find that interview. I encourage you to check it out if you haven't listened before to George Hansen. The disclaimer... For tonight is that in hour one, most of the questions you hear Jeremy and I ask were sent to us by Mr. Hansen himself. Typically, Jeremy and I don't do that sort of thing on Paratopia. We're, as you know, a lot more freeform than that. But George felt that in order to get a cohesive view out of his findings on the paranormal in general, uh, that he needed something with a little bit more productivity. Uh, in other words, he is going to walk you guys through the discussion tonight, which is marginality, uh, anti-structure, and the paranormal. George has some very, very exacting and, uh, as far as I'm concerned, mind-blowing information to impart to us about commonalities and what Jeremy kind of called structure in the anti-structure. Uh, surrounding paranormal events. It can get rather complex. George felt it would be best if he took this uh, from, uh, you know, what is the definition of these terms? How do they apply? What are the examples? So on and so forth. And I think walking you guys through it, I think he feels it's a, it, that you're going to get a lot more out of this than just random questions thrown at him by the two of us. So he's essentially going to walk you through in hour one. In hour two... We're going to be asking our own questions. Uh, I, I think a little bit in hour one, we did throw in a couple of our own. But uh, by and large, the first hour tonight, we just want everyone to know, essentially is being structured by George to give you guys uh, a, a nice walkthrough that's really going to help you get your heads around this if you might have had problems with it last time. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. I know I did. Uh, and I think that uh, once you listen to this show, I think when you go to another message board or you meet someone in person and they tell you that they've had a paranormal experience of some sort, you might be asking them some different questions, a la George Hansen. Check it out. I've been doing it, and I'm telling you, the guy's on to something. So we'll check it all out right after this. You're 
listening to UPRN 105.3 New Orleans. No, you're not. Jeff, would you like to do the intro? You never do the intro. I never do the intro? That's right. Oh, okay. How about we just launch right into the question since we've already done the intro? (laughs) All right, good enough. Mr. Hansen, how are you, sir? Well, I'm doing fine. Looking forward to this evening's uh, chat. Yes, me too. Very much, because I've been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks now, actually. Um, so just just for the, the sake of our audience here in, in this first hour, um, maybe you could go over some things that we're going to kind of try to lay a groundwork here that's, that's organized and, and productive. So um, first of all, where do the terms marginality and anti-structure come from, and what exactly do they mean? Okay, that's a really good question. These are the two terms I'd really like to talk about at length this evening. Marginality and anti-structure come from the social sciences. Marginality is a pretty well-known term. It's used quite, uh, quite widely there. It refers to people who are sort of outsiders, maybe immigrants who moved to another new culture and are just starting to immigrate, people who may be poor, have little power or influence, uh, people who are just sort of low status and largely ignored. And so those would be marginal people or marginal groups. Anti-structure isn't nearly as well-known a term. And it was introduced largely by a guy named Victor Turner in the 1960s, 1970s. And it refers to social structures uh, and possibly even people who are sort of marginal or maybe not the, 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 or there may be groups that are sort of outside the structure that are not completely integrated. It may refer to conditions where uh, social structures are breaking down, statuses are becoming blurred. It's a little hard to describe succinctly. That's just its nature. And I won't try to, but I will try to give a lot of examples as we go along because a lot of paranormal groups display this anti-structural trend. They don't stay together for very long. They don't achieve very much status. Uh, they tend to schism and the like. But I'll describe some and explain some examples as we go. So maybe I should give you some examples of how marginality uh, can apply to paranormal groups. That'd Uh, be great. um, Well, let's take some of the major ones. Let's look at MUFON, for instance. That's probably fairly well-known to your audience. Uh, I've been looking up some uh, budget figures uh, for various paranormal groups, and in 2007, MUFON spent about $211,000. so that's not a huge amount of money, really, considering it is the largest and most prominent group investigating UFOs. Look at the number sure. of TV shows uh, on the UFO phenomena. Look at uh, the movies, like Independence Day, which took in hundreds of millions of dollars in box office receipts. Yet Little MUFON is a tiny organization. In 2005, I checked, uh, had a membership of about 2,300 people. That's really, really small. It is a very marginal group. It's not integrated into any academic uh, area, really. They may have advisors, but itself, it's sort of a standalone group. I've been out to its office in Fort Collins, Colorado, 
maybe it's 150 square feet, maybe a couple hundred square feet at the most. It's really there are three women in it. They don't do actual research there. They just, just send out materials to their members, the journals, I guess, uh, and the mm. uh, other materials. So uh, I believe mu- much of it is almost certainly in the home of Jim Carrey and the director. So oh. clearly, this is a very small group, but there are other UFO groups. Uh, for instance, QFOS, the Center for UFO Studies in uh, Chicago, uh, started by J. Allen Hynek. Uh, its expenditures for 2007 were about $19,900. That's tiny. It publishes a magazine, International UFO Reporter. But given the, uh, and it is a serious group, uh, there, it certainly has its uh, difficulties and the flaws, but certainly they try to do something like scientific research. Right. Uh, now, they do publish um, their magazine, but years ago, they published uh, a journal, a journal of UFO studies, which was actually quite good. It was very high quality, but that didn't last. So what we see is this marginal group it was not able to maintain its uh, professional-level journal. It's sort of this anti-structure operating here. It just mm-hmm. couldn't, the, the professional-level work just did not survive. Hmm. Well, what about, um, let, me, let me ask you this. What about, um, on the other side of the coin, we have things like um, uh, the Atlantic Paranormal, you know, the TAPS thing. We've got the Paranormal State, both of which seem to be very rich, <laughs> Uh, by by way of their interest in this stuff. Okay, let's let's look at this in terms of marginality. Uh, first of all, neither of those groups have professional scientists involved to any real extent. When the, the TV crews go out there, they're not interviewing scientists who've been trained, who have specialized knowledge, uh, specialized uh, experience in investigating. What you've got with TAPS is you've got a group of plumbers. Now, what does this tell people? Well, it tells people, first of all, that uh, uh, maybe the t- this TV show isn't taking the, pro- the, the phenomena altogether seriously. In any other documentary, in any other type of investigation, in mainline science, they would not have plumbers. Now, I'm sure these guys are fairly bright and they're nice people, but they don't have scientific training or scientific background. Also... I'll point out in terms of marginality, the the professional plumber is relatively low status, especially within academe. So it is very easy to ignore any claims that they might make. Again, this is a marginal occupation, certainly in academic terms. It's low status, and it tends to diminish any credibility that they have. Now, this is not a criticism of any of the TAPS members. This is just how the world works. So it is, that is a marginal group. Now, if you move on to paranormal state, you don't have professors there with uh, degrees who are op- working within the academic uh, environment doing this kind of research. There's a graduate student there, and I'm not even sure how many of the people involved are still students at Penn State. But again, this gives a very clear message. This is not important enough to be within the university proper. It is out on the margins. Mm -hmm. So these groups really exemplify this low status, this marginal aspect of paranormal research. 
But there are other groups, too. You look at the Society for Scientific Exploration, which is uh, largely a professional group, and they do publish a professional-level uh, journal called the Journal of Scientific Exploration. Their uh, budget for 2007, their total expenditures, were about $106,000. That's still very, very small, and most of that went for printing costs and distribution and conference. Right. So, again, here you've got TAPS, and you've got Paranormal State, which obviously have quite a lot of dollars behind them, but sure. that's not real serious-level research. But when you get the serious-level research published in, in, say, the Journal of Scientific Exploration, it's a very, very tiny amount of money that's devoted to it in comparison mm-hmm. to the popularization of TAPS um, or Paranormal State. Another place you might look at is the Rhine Research Center down in Durham looked at their expenditures for 2007, about $171,000. Now, again, that's a very tiny amount of money, and right now, uh, I think a lot of that goes to building and uh, maintenance. I'm not sure just what, but they're doing very, very little research compared to 20 or 30 years ago. So, again, it's a very marginal level of effort, and you'll find this all across the board. Uh, The skeptics seem to do a little bit better, the CSI, the uh, Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which is formerly known as PSYCOP, uh, for 2007, had annual expenditures of about $1.7 million. Oh. Still a lot better than these, most of these paranormal groups, but still not a lot of money, uh, comparatively. Also, so you'll see these organized groups, some of which have been around for several decades. Uh, MUFON has been around for 40 years. And it's still essentially headquartered in the home of its uh, executive, it, the the guy who runs it. They're, they don't have you don't have an office you go to where you meet uh, investigators. There is no real paid staff of researchers there. Uh, Carrion, I think, worked uh, according to the tax return, 32 hours a week, and was paid seventeen thousand five hundred dollars for a whole year. So again, a tiny amount of money. Well, so. This is a very marginal effort. Well, uh, I'm trying to figure out um, what that. What does that say to you? What does that mean? Okay. Well, uh, let's let's keep the before we. That's kind of a broad question. Let's look at some other areas. Well, hold where, on a sec. I don't think it is a broad question because the second that you introduced uh, Independence Day, I immediately thought, um, well, there's Hotel Rwanda. Uh, that was a, an Academy-nominated, uh, I don't remember if it won awards, but it certainly was a nominated for Academy Awards, brought people's attention to the situation in Rwanda, and essentially, after that movie, uh, people went back to not caring. So it seems like the, the marginality thing is just a function, you know, all around. It doesn't seem to... No, no, you, you've still, got, you've still got a large number of people op- uh, advocating of intervention and aid for Rwanda. Well, sure, they're advocating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but there's still people. There's MUFON advocating for UFOs. I mean, no, but... no. The, the MUFON really is not an advocacy group in the same sense, and you, you certainly don't have the uh, Christian groups advocating for human rights in Africa. I mean, that's a much, much larger effort, and certainly you've got uh, uh, a lot more credibility and higher level people who do have some dollars who are paying attention to Rwanda. Give me some dollar figures on the amount of uh, aid to Rwanda. Do you have that? No, of course uh, not. I, I would suggest that the amount there is far, 
far larger than it would go to uh, UFO research. Mm, okay. But I still think that the ratio of public outcry and demand for something versus, no, no. Um, you know, interest when it's, uh, th- you know, put in the popularized in movies is always going to be a huge differential. Oh, well, not true at all. That's entirely false. Say, look at uh, shows like ER or House. Look at the uh, medical establishment. You've got a $2 trillion uh, budget uh that goes to medical care, health care in this country. The fictional portrayal of that is tiny. Yeah, but those aren't Look advocating anything. Look at top shows. Anything. Top shows are another example. You've but got those aren't advocating of... anything. Yes, they are. They're advocating better health. ER. They're advocating research. <laughs> no, they're uh, popularizing. They're popularizing occupations. Uh, we, yes, they're glamorizing and occupations. At, That's no, all they're doing. No, they are portraying them. Yeah. Look at the. But that—that's <laughs> fiction. With, but, well, here's the thing. With, look, with look, ER, okay, look, look, okay, look with, at the dollar well, value. Let me just oh. say this: with ER and house and those things, like the things that get popularized in, in, on TV are generally occupations uh, of people who give money, <laughs> who make a lot of money, and give money to Hollywood and give money to no, independent you, you, films and you, stuff you, like you, that. I mean, that's always are, sort of been. You the are completely goes. missing the point. Look at the the dollar value. Uh, that goes to foreign aid and to relieve human suffering to Africa. And compare that to the amount of money that was taken in with Hotel Rwanda, which is larger. Okay, I see your point. Okay, let's look at uh, police use of psychics. You've got what? You've got TV shows like Medium that's, that are on uh, for several years. Now, how many police departments can you go to that will admit that they regularly use psychics? (laughs) Not very many. How many of those police departments actually have people on the payroll to function as a psychic? I don't know of any. The best of my knowledge, it is zero. Yeah, I know that uh, there there is a show called uh, Psychic Investigations, I think it is, on Sunday nights on... Probably History Channel or something like that. And every story that comes on there, when you have the police officer talking about the the psychic that he he or she was dealing with, it's always kind of put in that context of, well, I kind of went behind my 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 chief's back, or I didn't mention anything to the guys that I was going to see this woman uh, exactly. about this case. It's always very hush hush in the very beginning. That's exactly my experience. I have been out on uh, cases with police officers, with psychics, and that's exactly how it's done. It is marginal. It is kept very low profile. It's not one, they don't want to admit it, and I know of some cases in which a colleague of mine was out with, with a psychic on police uh, investigation, came back, turned on her TV, and there was the spokesman for the police department outright denying they ever use psychics. <laughs> yeah. So again, this this is an instance of the marginality of of uh, use of psychics uh, officially in police departments. Mm. Same thing with corporations. I have done consulting for uh, one major corporation, and we use psychics in our uh, uh, investigations uh and paid fairly well. Hmm. But 
It was done very quietly. They came to me because I could serve as an intermediary there, and uh, the higher-ups didn't have to know it was being done. So again, it's very marginal. And people in the corporation, some of themselves were actually practicing psychics, but kept it very, very quiet. They, they, they did not want anyone to know they were using this kind of methodology. So it is a very marginal type of endeavor. Well, George, how, um, how in the way of just say a police department, because you would probably know this, uh, or, or corporate you know, entities that use psychics or what have you, how successful are these things usually when it comes down to like a police using a psychic? Is there a, a tremendous success rate with that kind of thing, even if it's kept hush-hush? It's not tremendous, but it does help. And I know in my work in business intelligence, it was very definitely helpful. We got some very definite leads that were just came out of the air from the psychic that we followed up on. Definitely helpful. So, again, but the corporations do not want to admit that they use it, and most of them will not, and those that do will do so very quietly. Again, it is very marginal. What about religion? Okay, well, religion is very interesting, too. Let's look at some of the major religions today. Uh, Catholicism certainly has a belief in miracles and even modern miracles, but it's very leery of them. They don't like to promote people who are alive that are actually performing these miracles. After they're dead, they may go through a process of investigation and eventual beatification and canonization. But often, they are very, very leery of getting involved in looking at those things. Now, in Protestant Christianity, there's a variety of different uh, approaches. In some of the more Calvinist uh, religions and some of the more fundamentalist, uh, believe that miracles stopped at the time of the apostles. And anything that happened since might be very suspicious and uh, very likely the work of the devil, again marginalizing the occurrence of the phenomenon. Some of the more liberal Protestant denominations, especially in the seminaries, uh, uh, advocate something called demythologizing, which suggests that some of the stories in the Bible and modern miracles were simply, they didn't happen as they were actually reported. A very, very skeptical, debunking type of an approach, actually. A Christian science is a really, really interesting case because there you would think that uh, they, be- they believe that the mind can heal and with the name science in the name, you would think they'd be very, very open to scientific investigation of the power of prayer. And in fact, actually the opposite is the case. Uh, people who try to verify uh, their practices scientifically have been excommunicated, shunned, and in a very, very vicious manner. Uh, if you want to, there's a very interesting book on this by a guy named Bill Sweet, who's a friend of mine. It's titled Journey into Prayer, about two researchers who were, were actually very active in Christian science and were actively trying to prove their effects uh, scientifically. And they were, they encountered enormous hostility uh, by the Christian science hierarchy. So again, it is marginalized within these religions. Uh, Modern-day witchcraft is also rather interesting. If you go back 30 to 40 years ago, there was 
a fair amount of interest in the efficacy of magical practices for real practical use. Mm-hmm. But uh, today, there's much, much less emphasis. And what's happened in modern-day witchcraft is that there has been a push to become a bit more respectable and a bit more accepted, uh, getting chaplains in the military and the like. Uh, and with this growing respectability, there has been a decline of interest and emphasis on the practical utility of magic. So again, they're pushing that off to the side. It's less important. You can see the same thing happened with the Pentecostals. In the early days of the Pentecostal movement, there were signs and wonders that were quite amazing accounts. But as the Pentecostal movement became more structured, less anti-structured, more with a bigger hierarchy, more organized churches, the emphasis on signs and wonders diminished. And some of the academics now who are writing about it, some of whom grew up in Pentecostal movement, you read their writings, they seem really embarrassed by those early accounts and tend to avoid mentioning them. Um, the New Thought movement, for instance, also has an interest in, in these kinds of phenomena, actively using mental power to bring about practical effects. But those churches are quite marginal. Uh, They might uh, use rented halls. I know one in the Princeton area doesn't have its own church but rents a hall. And uh, there are relatively few children that come. They're they're very marginal groups. So even in religion, you know, miracles are nice maybe to talk about if they're long ago and far away. But if they're upfront and personal, uh, they're generally not too well received. Uh, the one religion that is very open to them, of course, is spiritualism. But that's an extraordinarily marginal religion. Very few have their own uh, church halls. They often rent. And it, in this country, it's really declined uh, for the last 50 years dramatically. So again, when... and Spiritualism is the one religion that actively courts direct engagement with the phenomena, but you rarely see it. Uh, And certainly very few people will put down spiritualism as their main religion. George, I don't want to uh, derail us too bad here, but I do have to ask this to kind of drive the point home about the uh, religious aspect of this. Uh, Because I'm sure that this is going to come up on the message board uh, one way or another. Um, how would something like uh, the, the Fatima occurrence fit into the marginal um, area of this uh, whole discussion? How does that fit into uh, it being marginalized as an event? Because that was uh, supposedly a lot of witnesses and whatnot. I'm not sure I understand the question. Could you... Like, for, well, the, the, the Fatima... Um, uh, uh, I, I guess you'd call them manifestations of some kind. I have not read a ton about them, but I have heard a lot of people bring that up as far as a religious event, um, which I kind of debate that it was a religious event based on what I've read about it. Um, I, I'm curious how something like that, which I think is acknowledged by the church, is it not? What event? I didn't know. Fatima. Fatima. Fatima? Yes. Um, that is, but it's long ago, 
far away. It's right. not current. It occurred with uh, relatively young people, uh, peasants, as I recall, who were quite marginal figures to start with, mm-hmm. people who would normally be overlooked outside the realm of uh, usual power structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was temporary. It would occur. Mm-hmm. The phenomenon occurred on days predicted, but then it was transitory. It did not stick around, and people came from miles around, uh, thousands of people, and then it evaporated. So yes, that was that phenomenon was acknowledged, but it is not. Uh, but it did occur in a marginal area, in a rather, I think, a setting that was rather poor. Right. Uh, so yeah, it it, mm. it did not occur in the church itself with the bishops and the priests uh, right. officiating. Right. It occurred outside the structure of the, the, the ordinary church. And were those, were those children, were they uh, uh, belittled and berated by the church at the time of those events? I or have the to time go back and look at that. There's, uh, there's several books on that. There's uh, one by Stanley Jackie, who's a Benedictine priest, I think, at Seton Hall. Uh, hmm. But uh, I, I can't speak uh, in depth on that uh, this evening. Yeah. Okay. Uh, certainly the people who were involved were not, especially the, the children who were involved, were not part of the ch- church hierarchy themselves at all. Oh, right, exactly, exactly. Well, to move on with this, um, I guess the next part would be colleges and universities. I mean, how do they treat this whole paranormal thing, and, and um, is, is it as marginal there as it is everywhere else? Oh, it, it's at least. But just think about, uh, you know, when you go to even grade school or junior high or high school, you don't cover these topics in any science class. And when you go to colleges or universities, they are almost never mentioned. They may be mentioned in humanities classes and literature classes, but that's it. But that sends a rather strong signal that, okay, they're fine for fiction, but the way we find out how the world works is science today, and they are not covered. Uh, I don't know. There are very few classes in this country for credit uh, that discuss uh, paranormal topics. Uh, back in the 70s and 80s, there were a number, not a large number, but you could find out where fairly easily because some of the societies would publish lists. But today, there are very few indeed. Uh, there are very few researchers in universities that spend any time at all doing research. Back in, two, in between 1979 and 2007, there was the lab at Princeton University that was quite high profile within uh, the parapsychology field. However, within Princeton itself, it was not terribly well received. It had a very small office a laboratory in the basement of the engineering building, but there was no sign on the door really letting you know what it was. You had to, There was a small psi symbol on it, as I recall, but they kept a very low profile. And a number of the professors at the university were very unhappy that the lab was in existence. So again, it was a very marginalized uh, operation, even though they could bring in a substantial amount of money and there were benefactors who were willing to donate a considerable uh, amount of money 
the university did not want to accept it, and the laboratory eventually closed. Mm. And but this is this happened down at Duke University as well, and uh, there are a number of other instances like this throughout the history of psychical research. Is there any evidence that um, as they were trying, you know, in whatever universities or colleges that were trying to study this? that in trying to study it and in trying to bring it into a scientific structure, uh, that it didn't respond well to that? Well, there certainly have been some very successful experiments done in universities. My own feeling, though, is that it may not be a good uh, venue for this kind of research. Uh, Probably the best example would be the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, Robert Morris had a... held the chair of parapsychology there, and he died several years ago. And he was able to produce quite a number of graduate students. So the field was expecting that with this large number of graduate students, I think I, I think the number was on the order of 20. It might be plus or minus a bit, but uh, it wasn't 100, it wasn't 5 or 10. But we expected a fairly large amount of research to be generated and published in the parapsychology journals. That really hasn't happened. So whether the pressures from the universities have kept it uh, from happening or what, I'm not sure. But uh, there are a number of his graduate students now who hold uh, academic positions but who have not really produced much in the way of uh, new research. So that's a very good question. And I, I do suspect that universities, the university environment may not be particularly conducive to good results. It is a very structured, a very hierarchical organization and subculture. Uh, and these phenomena tend to avoid that, like Fatima, uh, it did not occur in front of the bishops and the cardinals and within within the church. It occurred outside. I suspect these phenomena may have these other paranormal phenomena may have a similar uh, characteristic. Hmm. Now, certainly, you can do very tightly controlled experiments. Uh, with these phenomena and get some rather strikingly good results. I've been involved in some studies like that, and I have a number of colleagues who have too. But there may be something about the organization, the culture, that affects this. These phenomena do seem to be very affected by human consciousness, and not just the people who are directly involved immediately, but perhaps later on as well. Uh, there is something called retroactive PK, and that's been rather reasonably well established in laboratory situations. And it does suggest that effects, paranormal effects, may be caused at least in part by groups of people, and before or and or after the event may even take place. Well, now that's a pretty wild idea, but <laughs> retroactive PK has been studied for well over 30 years. So I would not totally dismiss the idea that human consciousness may go back and forward in time and somehow subtly influence certain paranormal uh, phenomena. Well, George, how? how, Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, 
in the sense of like what you've done with uh, you know uh, very rigorous uh, setups and and studies of this phenomena, whatever phenomena you may have been into at the time in kind of a structured way. Uh, how how difficult do you find that to get any sort of result from any sort of paranormal phenomena at all, being as it seems to avoid structure and routine and all of that kind of thing? I mean, does, doesn't that play a huge part in not getting results? No, I, it depends largely on the personalities involved. Uh, I've worked with some very uh, good people uh, who uh, seem to be able to uh, facilitate production of the phenomena. People who are in academic, the academic world, especially in Europe, uh, seem to be highly status conscious mm-hmm. and really kind of convey that to people, uh, and they're not aware of themselves doing it. But the uh, people I've worked with who've been very successful at uh, producing psychic phenomena were not status conscious and were able to relate to a lot of different people. So again, this break, this notion of structure involves status to a very significant degree in the anthropological theorizing. And people who are able to transcend or overcome their, st- their status levels and kind of level the playing, level the, uh, the field that, and the interaction. So people seem to be more equal, uh, much better at. Whereas the, some, especially some of the British researchers I've known were extremely snobbish. And people had an immediate reaction to them, I remember seeing <laughs> in our laboratory. <laughs> uh, and that puts people off. But people who are able to work with people effectively, and we had one uh, one woman I worked with who was just extraordinarily good at putting people at ease and relating to them, and she did very very well. Hmm. Well, I guess that kind of leads us into the the next question, which is, uh, how about you give us some examples of uh, how marginality and uh, anti-structure could affect uh, a person involved in the paranormal. Okay, well, let's give some examples. Uh, one of my favorite examples is Francis of Assisi. And he was a very marginal figure in a number of ways. Uh, he was known for healings and levitation and talking with animal or communicating with animals. But uh, he basically rejected... Uh, the workaday world. His father was a rather wealthy merchant, and he started giving away some of his father's goods. Well, his father was not too happy about that and went to the bishop and uh, complained about it, and Francis of Assisi then took off all his clothes and said, you're no longer my father, Uh, God is my father, and basically took a a vow of poverty and was no, no longer part of the typical everyday workaday world structure. He then relied on the generosity of others and uh, basically so much so that the church had really difficult time taking care of him and his followers. So he was very much outside the structure. Uh, so And he was a very marginal figure. Uh, another set of marginal figures are spirit mediums. Uh, many of them donate their time. In, in some ways, they are like psychotherapists. 
uh, often they get paid relatively little. Uh, they do it as a calling, uh, not as a career. Uh, if they are operating, they're not operating out of any big, large corporation. They may operate out of their homes or some small spiritualist church that barely ekes by. Right. Uh, but some of these people are very gifted. I've met a number of them. But they are very marginal. They're not terribly w- welcome in corporations doing that kind of thing, and especially not uh, in the academic world uh, or in mainstream religion. They are marginal figures, yet they have some real talent. What about someone like Aleister Crowley? Uh, well, he was certainly out on the edge. <laughs> yeah. didn't, didn't <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> yeah. A good example. You know, very involved with magical practices. Uh, did not follow the standard moral uh, requirements of the day and was uh, very heavily involved in occult practices. And anyone today who advertises themselves as an occultist is probably not going to be working at an ordinary uh, type job, at least one with some status and responsibility in the typical corporation today. Right. That's, that's an, an area or an endeavor that you would take on your own and probably keep pretty quiet if you were employed in a, a well-paying job. Right, right. Does that not, some, in, in some way, and, and, and I'll, I'll try not to get you pissed off at me this early. <laughs> That's okay. Does it, does, it's, does it some point, it, it's been flipping through my head every time we're talking about a marginal personality in this, that uh, uh, by and large, wouldn't you think that a lot of that is due to the paranormal just kind of being sneered at as, you know, crazy or... Um, you know, that dude's really out there or, um, you know, they, they just uh, have an overactive imagination. Uh, something that not everyone experiences is bound to be marginalized in some way, especially if it's something as subjective as the paranormal can be at times. Well, that's partly true, but you can look at some very highly regarded people. Uh, for instance, Brian Josephson, Nobel Prize winner in physics. Mm-hmm. And he has come under uh, a number of attacks with, uh, in the media for his interest and support of uh, parapsychological research. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's all around. You know, there are people who may indeed act rather marginal and may d- indeed act a little bit crazy because of their beliefs and their experiences. But people mm-hmm. who are not that way you'll get treated. Uh, Robert John at Princeton University was the dean of the Engineering and Applied Science School. Mm. Uh, And he also really came under considerable attack for his interest and involvement in these uh, researches. Mm. So, yes, part of it is indeed there is a crazy aspect to this. Mm. But uh, even if when there isn't, the the taboo and the stigma still is active. Now, this is not something new. It's not something that happened just within, uh, you know, the last few hundred years. You can go back a thousand years or two thousand years, and you can see similar types of stigma and taboos. Mm. 
George, I'm just wondering if if this plays into, and if it does, then how, um, what you had said, I think it was in our last, if it wasn't in a private conversation, it was in our last public conversation, um, that you can actually pick out people in, uh, for instance, ufology, who you think are going to sort of end up going off the deep end. Does, does this play into that at all? Well, certainly. I mean, John Keel, in one of his, uh, I think, the Mothman prophecies, uh, said the phenomena seems to have a battle cry that goes like, make him look like a nut. And involvement with strongly functioning paranormal phenomena often can have very uh, dramatic psychological repercussions, sometimes good and sometimes not so good. Uh, For instance, near-death experiences can have very profound effects on an individual. Uh, Bruce Grayson has a very interesting case, and I think of a mafia hitman uh, who had a very profound near-death experience and basically turned his life way around. And his girlfriend was rather pissed because he was no longer very interested in making a bunch of money. So some of the results of these phenomena can be highly positive, but some others can be very destabilizing. Uh, I've known a number of researchers who've been divorced. Uh, I've known a number who've had other personal problems problems in their lives, and particularly ghost researchers. And ghost researchers are out trying to interact with the phenomenon on a somewhat regular basis. And I have observed a number of them who have been quite active who've had rather difficult personal relations. And I think uh, it, it strikes me as far more than the average person would. Mm-hmm. And if you look at ghost research groups, they often schism rather quickly. So, yes, involvement with these phenomena can be destabilizing. They are anti-structural in that sense. They are not conducive to establishing long-term stable relationships. So if you can pick out the person in the crowd who's going to go bonkers, then does that not imply that there it's just about personality types or a certain personality type that will will stay afloat in this, and then there are certain personality types that won't, and that you can sort of key into that? Well, there are certain types and uh, and certain patterns that you can see, Um, particularly people who have reached middle age and have achieved a certain amount of status and some distinction within their field. If they come into paranormal fields, they are particularly vulnerable uh, to making rather silly statements and doing things and saying things that really have little or no basis uh, rationally. Uh, you can also watch people along their careers and just see what they're saying and see how they're changing. Some people seem to be able to handle it fairly well, and others do not. And this is sort of a long-term, longitudinal observation that you have to make. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I have kind of a cruel question, okay. <laughs> which is that you know I'm no I'm no fan of exopolitics, and in fact I'd be hard pressed to find uh, a sane exo political proponent uh, myself. But then Richard Dolan comes along, and he seems to sort of um, sort of uh, fit the normalcy category in a certain way. But lately he's been uh, been called into question on certain things, and I'm wondering how you 
see him? Do you see him as the same as the other XO poles, or do you think that he is different? Do you think he's falling into uh, sort of the trickster trap, or do you think he'll survive? Well, uh, Richard's a very interesting case. He's certainly very, very bright. Uh, I think everyone would give him that. Uh, but let's uh, look at his uh, way he makes his living. You know, he is does not have a nine to five corporate job. He is definitely out on the margins, not part of a larger structure to any extent. It, as far as the workaday world goes, so that gives him a certain amount of freedom. It also places him in a bit uh, a position of some vulnerability. If he were working, say, in a laboratory situation, say, in parapsychology, he would have colleagues. Uh, if he were working with a ghost research group on a day-to-day basis, he'd have colleagues that he would interact with day in and day out. With the type of work he's doing, he would be a bit less structural, more anti-structural, and probably more vulnerable to some of the uh, trickster types of phenomena that tend to occur. Uh, I haven't watched them closely enough, and I'm certainly, I I wouldn't want to comment on any specific things that he's done recently because I just haven't followed him closely enough. But he is a very interesting case, and certainly of the few people I know in the exopolitics, I certainly would give him much more credence than the others. Uh, Michael Sala is a very interesting case. He seems to have been reasonably well accomplished in the area of political science. But when he got into uh, the UFO field, he wrote very interesting papers that would be in a style very much like an academic uh, paper, but citing some of the very worst and some of the very poorest quality uh, writing in the UFO field from researchers and sources I know to be extremely dubious, and that would be very kind. He had, (laughs) Salah showed no critical judgment whatsoever, and that's exactly the type of vulnerability one likely will encounter when one sees someone relatively accomplished in these other fields coming into the paranormal field and thinking the same kinds of rules and same types of approaches will apply, and they don't. You well, do, you have think, to be, do you think maybe part of the problem is that we um, we sort of hold uh, academics on a, a pedestal and just the fact that they have a degree means that, they, that they're smart, but, but they might not be, quote-unquote, street smart. I mean, you take someone like... Uh, well, I'm more familiar with Weber's writings, actually. You know, Alfred Weber, uh-huh. uh, you look at his resume, and it looks pretty good, and then you read his stuff, or you see his speeches, and you, you see that he, it's, it's the same thing. It's like he just completely believes anything anyone tells him and uh, adds it to the synthesis that is his evolving uh, description yeah. of what he believes is going on. No, no, that that is one of the problems with uh, the academic uh mind is it often does lack street smarts, and it does not have to grapple with direct concrete reality very often. It grapples with uh, symbols. Symbolic uh, manipulation is the basically the trade of the academic. They write or they do numbers. Uh, so they are somewhat insulated, and when they do encounter the phenomena more directly, 
they're sort of lost at sea. And Weber and Sawa are really good examples of that. Do you think that would be sort of a, an example of structure clashing with anti-structure? Oh, yes. Yeah, they come from a very structured environment, so they know the rules, they know what kinds of things to look for and how to organize, but they encounter this anti-structural field and they're lost. Yeah, I mean, I've been sort of, uh, I just wrote an article for UFO Magazine really panning exopolitics and, and sort of saying that this is uh, how structured, I guess, uh, rigid, educated, essentially white males um, who have repressed their creativity get to imagine. Do you, you think that's fair to say? Do you think that's sort of what this is about? Something like this, but the, back in 1930, Walter Franklin Prince wrote a book titled The Enchanted Boundary, in which he described how people who have were fairly accomplished uh, in other fields came into uh, psychical research and made absolutely foolish statements over and over and over again. And he documented this from 1930 back to 1820. So this is not something new. This has been going on for hundreds of years. That when people encounter these phenomena, they lose critical judgment, and that's one of the reasons there is this stigma around these phenomena. These phenomena have side effects, and one of the side effects is a loosening of the critical judgment. Mm-hmm. So do you think it's fair to paint this picture? We've got this giant world, this broad world, and... For whatever reason, uh, humanity uh, narrows its view, and if any of the people with the narrow views can see something of that broader world, they immediately want to filter it and into their narrow view, which completely distorts it, and uh, and that sort of describes what you're talking about. Well, that's, that's a description. I, I wouldn't find that particularly useful. Well, I'm going to get you to say why at some point. <laughs> uh, I know you don't like that question, why, but... Why is not a scientific question. What or how are useful scientific questions. Yeah, but I thought science has a limit here and that that's the whole problem, isn't it? No, no. You, you can still deal with empirical reality uh, without uh, addressing the why. Because if you're asking why, then you've got some type of model and framework you are already assuming uh, essentially holds. And in these fields, we don't really have that very much. Well, we do in in terms of religion. We know, for instance, you know, when the Catholic Church builds a church on top of a pagan site or, you know, has holidays that uh, mirror pagan holidays and tries to take all of that, you know, the plethora of uh, gods and beliefs and, and narrow them into their one system... Uh, that would be an example of yes, the type of that, narrowing uh, I'm talking about. Okay, well, that happens, but it's not really key. Sure it is. And what it, do you mean that's not key? <laughs> no, it, it, it's really not key to understanding what's happening here. Okay, what's the key to understanding what's happening? You have to... You, you do not... I do not advocate any grand overarching narrative, which is what you are advocating. And there is no grand overarching narrative here that will explain it. It will explain parts of it, but it is very limiting once you do that. You need to deal directly with the phenomena, its effects, how they work, when they work, where they work, and what happens. You are imposing a psychological perspective here that I don't believe is terribly useful. 
so what is the key? Just observing the just observing the totality of it, and not Does it, observing the more uh, a larger uh, uh, pers- taking a larger perspective and more the totality, the system where, when when it is working, when it's not. Uh, this is very abstract, and that's why I don't like to talk about this uh, because you cannot effectively convey this uh, orally in a discussion. You need to do it in writing. And until you are willing to put your your ideas into writing, they're really not very uh, valuable on the on these topics. Well, you they know, this, have to be this reminds me of when I looked up. Um, you know, I used to look up things. You know, just keep breaking down words and breaking down words. And I broke down, you know, molecule into atom into particle, blah blah. And eventually, you get to force. And uh, the definition of force mm-hmm. is just that it is. Mm-hmm. There is no scientific what is the creator yeah. of the force. What yeah. it, it just yeah. sort what, of is what is. Yeah, what is an electron. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I guess it's it's a weird, it's a paradoxical thing. Like part of me says, okay, that's a cop-out. Mm-hmm. It's a cop-out to not say what is what is creating that force. But then on the other hand, you know, in terms of the stuff that we're talking about, right. like you're saying, to put an answer on that is to then box it and give structure to the anti-structure. And so you can't really do that. Yeah, yeah, I, I like your analogy of, uh, of, of force. You, you, you come down to some level at which you just, okay, this is what is, and this is what is observed. And you can, you know, the psychological approach and uh, schema is sometimes useful. But if you, the problem is parapsychology has taken psycho, a psychological approach for well over 100 years, and it hasn't really gotten very far. One of our uh, listeners, Dorkbot, if you'll pardon the name, uh, was asking uh, what investigative tools are being underutilized, in your opinion. Is there any? Are there any? Well, that's a very broad question. I need much more, uh, a much more pointed and specific uh, question here. <laughs> uh, I, I have research. no idea what's being talked about. In Psy Research. Uh, well, I think uh, virtually all are being underutilized. There is very little Psy Research being done compared to 20 years ago. Hmm. I mean, is, there are very Is there anyone people... doing quality Psy Research today that you can point to? Anything Ed May does, I would take very seriously. I don't know how active he is right now. Anything, I, I don't know if uh, that William Broad has done anything. Um, there are relatively few that I have much confidence in at this point. Hmm. Oh, Etzel Cardania is very bright. Uh, not doing probably the kinds of things I would do, but I would pay attention to him. He'd also asked, and this is a broad question too, what are your thoughts on Rex and Ray Sanford? Very interesting guys. Uh, I had quite a, you know, a fair number of uh, interactions with uh, Rex. He certainly visited labs I worked in, uh, and we had a lot of interaction. Uh, early in their lives, they had very striking UFO encounters. Uh, Rex has done some of the very best, uh, some of the very top research in parapsychology. He's one of the very best researchers uh, in the field. He's retired now. He's I think, living down in Texas or thereabouts. Uh, Ray Stanford has made substantial contributions to paleontology. He's found fossils that no one knew existed. And my own guess is that was probably partly due to his psychic ability. Now, Rex was the, the scientist in the paranormal. Ray was the psychic. 
so I would not, you'd have to evaluate them very differently. And I'm not nearly as familiar with uh, Ray's work as I am with Rex's. But Rex had some very interesting experimental work and some very interesting and influential uh, theoretical, theoretical work, uh, conforms behavior and sign-mediated instrumental response. Hmm. Now, those terms will mean almost nothing to most of your listeners, but they receive quite a lot of attention within the professional literature. George, what... Um... What 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 people out there are not wild, widely known that deserve closer attention or at least a second look, in your well, opinion? Anything by uh, James Spottis would, would be another person. I'd have to, you know, that's kind of an unfair question. I'm not prepared to answer that. I'm not following that literature as closely as I once was. Well, let's blame that on Dortbot because he answered. He asked that question as well, so that's uh, that's his fault. <laughs> no, uh, those, those types of questions. If you want to give them, uh, give them to me ahead of time, I'd be willing to certainly look into that a little bit more. You know, okay. one time I was reading all the journals, almost uh, page, you know, almost cover to cover, and I don't do uh, that now. Uh, the other thing that came up on our boards, which also came up on our last episode, uh, was the Linda Core Tilly or whatever her real last name is case. Um, and oh, yeah. I, I've read your, your paper with your, your co-authors on that, <laughs> and what's fascinating is the correlation between what she's saying and, uh, I think it was Night Eyes, is that? Oh, yeah, the yeah. Sci- the sci-fi story. Was there ever a proper rebuttal to how that's even possible, that, that it was so exact? Well, I think Bud and Linda tried to respond. By the way, the last few days I have posted a couple, uh, I think three more pieces from that time period of uh, articles I produced and that were circulated. So they, they are now up on my website, so if you want a bit more detail. Also, Bud and Linda uh, both published uh, several things afterwards that appeared, like I think, in the MUFON Journal and elsewhere. So there is still a fair amount of literature out there, and other people have contributed to it, too. So uh, Greg Sandow was another person who wrote. Uh, so, you know, I haven't compiled a bibliography of all their writings, but perhaps you could get such from Bud or Linda or their, some of the partisans. Mm-hmm. Well, have you personally heard anything that, that has been a good rebuttal to uh, to what you wrote? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I don't know of them addressing anything in uh, my book, which and I had uh, a chapter that was largely devoted to that case. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the case still gets some attention and is given some credence by a number of people, the older guys in ufology. But uh, given the claims, uh, I, it doesn't seem to have uh, drawn quite as much support as Bud had hoped. Well, yeah, I, I read, I think it was Walt Anders Jr. who was saying, uh, you know, well, I've heard some of those tapes by some of the people um, where you're even questioning whether they exist or not. Uh-huh. And not only do they exist, but they don't sound like actors. Um, I, I don't know. D- does that do anything for you? I mean, so what? No, that doesn't. Uh, you know, there are, there are lots of pieces of evidence that Bud could turn over to law enforcement authorities to help identify those people. He, was, he didn't do that. In fact, uh, Secret Service visited uh, him and Linda, and they apparently did not give uh, provide Secret Service evidence uh, that they could use to identify those individuals. 
Hmm. Well, I don't know if uh, Bud practices this or not, but I've certainly seen it elsewhere where a case will be built up and everyone signs non-disclosure agreements and, um, you know, the people involved, the investigators involved, really don't want to hear anything negative about the case. They sort of just boot you off the case if you say something negative and then, you know, publish each other's results or I should say publish each other's quotes about the case as if, you know, sort of backing it up. But it's well, really do, you have, this... do you have a specific case in mind? Uh, no. Not, well, yes, but nothing, nothing that I can talk about publicly. But I've seen this in action, and uh, I'm, I'm wondering, well, it sounds like you haven't seen this in action. Have oh, you? I have. Okay, I have. so do you think something like that is going on, where it, it's, it, like, it, this was supposed to be the big gravy day for everybody? They were, they were all going to cash in on this? Do you think that's possible? No. Huh. No, I, I, I don't believe that Jerry Clark or Walt Andrus or David Jacobs were hoping to cash in and make a bunch of money based on this case. I, I just don't think they're that kind of people. I think they're basically honest people. I think they were taken in by the story. I don't think they had any ulterior motives, and I don't think Bud did either. I think Bud was basically trying to do a good job. I think he lost critical judgment. I don't think he was... You know, maybe he expected to achieve quite a bit of a claim, but uh, I don't think he was primarily in it for the money, and I don't think he ever was. And you've met Linda, correct? Yes. And did you think that she, she was honest with you when you spoke with her? No. <laughs> she admitted she lied to me. She did? Yes. I, in fact, I put that in my paper. Yeah. Huh. I, I guess I glanced over that. Very interesting. Well, see, now here's the thing, then. This is just makes me want to, like, quit and give up, and now I can see where everyone eventually does. Um, when I see something like that, um, or Greer, which is my greatest example of hearing someone speak and immediately knowing that they're, you know, completely full of it, well, uh, if so many people it, but... don't know that, and these are the researchers... Yeah. then how can you trust any of the research? Right, right. <laughs> no, I, I, and again, with Greer, I don't know him personally. I've had uh, minuscule interaction with him. My guess is he's probably quite sincere. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, he, you'd, be, you'd be wrong about that, sir. <laughs> no, no he, 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 is, he, has, he has certainly got uh, problems with grandiosity. Uh, but... That doesn't mean I don't think he's in it for the money. He he certainly could be much better off if he were pursuing uh, medicine. Uh, George, you do realize that he sent out emails from his uh, website asking for people's stimuluses checked, right? Oh yes, I've gotten those. Uh, yeah. Perhaps now he has gone over, and uh, I know he likes to fly first class. Like yeah. to be treated real well, and you know, ask people to send them the the, the frequent flyer miles or whatever. Right. Uh, but basically, I think he is caught up with the idea that this is really the most important thing in the world, and we can do it. And he may have started believing this very, very deeply, and maybe always did. I am very. I think Greer is a smart guy. And I think he, if he actually were in it for the money primarily, he would be in some other field because he must realize no one in this, very few people in these fields make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I think, 
I think the driving force with him, and this is purely speculative, I think it's a, a genuine desire to have an impact by um, making public all these uh, this information about UFOs, which I don't think this, this will happen. I don't think the UFO phenomenon is anything like what he believes it is. Have you ever seen him speak publicly? Yeah. Huh. Well, I've seen him speak once publicly, and I just immediately thought, okay, pathological liar. You know, and that, that sort of answers it to me. Well, I've, I've encountered so many people who I, you know, knew were uh, talking bogus, but when I talked to them and got to know them, I came away with the, I could see why most people thought they were lying. And I had good friends. I had a colleague I worked with uh, who I I didn't catch him, but he was being taken in over and over and over again. Uh, in fact, I've had several colleagues like this and who would just absolutely admit this was true paranormal phenomena when obviously they were magic tricks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and neither, none of these people were making any substantial amount of money, and they were giving their own. They were, one was living in a very impoverished existence, uh, trying to prove that these phenomena were real, and his colleagues were all laughing at him, that he persisted, and he died begging for money, literally. Uh, so I have some sympathy for those people, but they've lost the critical judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think they're con artists, and I and you know I know people have said that about Bud, and I don't think so. Yeah, I don't I think, think Bud's he's a very. Oh, think, no. Uh-huh. With Greer, I don't know nearly as well, but if he were smart and operating, uh, tr- trying to make money, he would realize there's not that much in these fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess I have sort of one final question, and then uh, Jeff, uh, whatever you got left, go for it. Sure. Which is that Jacques Vallée has said he basically left because there's nothing, there's nothing left to learn. Do you think that there is nothing left to learn? Oh, I think there's plenty left to learn, but you need the appropriate theoretical perspectives and knowing how to ask the right questions. And right now, most people in these fields ha- are locked into paradigms and mindsets that don't allow them to ask new and different kinds of questions. That's the problem. You need younger people with a different approach. And I think there are lots of things to learn, but uh, the the standard scientific paradigms that we use, chemistry, physics, biology, psychiatry, medicine, and the like, don't really apply very well here. Even most of the perspectives in the humanities, but I believe that there are some perspectives from the social sciences and the humanities that could be very valuable. The whole notion of deconstruction has not been effectively applied to the paranormal. Uh, Colin Bennett has just begun that, and I think there are a few others. But there are, these are drastically different ways of thinking, and strong deconstructionist ideas meet with extreme resistance in the science, among, especially old white man scientists and others. And it's not as fashionable as it was 10 or 15 years ago, but some of those ideas are very, very intriguing. But uh, as one gets closer to these types of phenomena and encounters ideas that tend to grapple with them effectively, they generally uh, 
those ideas become marginalized within the academic world and the scientific world. Hmm. If you look at structural anthropology, for instance, there are some very interesting ideas there. But there are, are a number of uh, paranormal researchers who have denounced that, and they don't want to go there. So, yes, I think there is a lot to learn yet, and I think there are ways of doing it. But it is likely to be relegated to the margins. These are not going to attract mainstream attention. And once one is able and willing to understand that and accept it, then I think progress can be made. But if one is coveting scientific status, and that is really what they are trying to achieve, then they are going to have real problems. And I think that's one of the problems with Greer. He really wants uh, mainstream scientific attention and status given to the areas of his interest, and he doesn't understand that that is not going to happen for some very deep reasons. Same with Bud Hopkins, too. Uh, They definitely want high, you know, Hopkins went out and got John Mack involved, who is the head of the psychiatry department at Harvard Medical School. Uh, brought a lot of status, but Mack himself lost considerable critical judgment when he came into these fields. He did not distinguish himself. A lot of people look up to him because of his status within psychiatry, but if you look at the quality of his work, it was not very impressive. Well, wasn't he also involved in something that I guess would have been considered marginal before, which was something, uh, I don't know if it was past life stuff or something like that. No, he was involved but, with psychoanalysis, which, you know, within psychology uh, has a very mixed background and a lot of opposition. But uh, to my knowledge, he had no involvement at all with anything paranormal before he got, in fact, I think he said he was essentially an atheist before he got involved uh, with these fields. Well, because I remember reading, there was a uh, some kind of article in, in a mainstream paper. I, I'd have, I'm going to have to search this out and find it. Um, but it said that to, some of his colleagues at college weren't surprised that he was involved in the UFO abduction thing because he had been involved in X before, which I can't remember what it was. But Well, I know uh, psychoanalysis was one of the things that was uh, brought, you know, objected to by some of the, the scientists that were criticizing him. But he did get involved with psychical research after he was involved with abductions and the, uh, I think, the survival research stuff. But to my knowledge, he was not involved with that before the abduction uh, phenomenon. Well, I think think a case that shoots the mind for me, and Jeremy's probably going to kill me for bringing this up, with a lot of what you've talked about tonight, uh, that seems to be the uh, uh, the grab bag of uh, marginality is uh, the Billy Meyer case. <laughs> well, another, yeah, and, he, he's another very marginal figure. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And very trickster figure, yes. Uh, yeah. And again, one that uh, scientists will run away from because, well, the fraud there is rather obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it does taint the field, it does marginalize the field of ufology as that becomes more prominent and, uh, and more well-known publicly. It does not enhance the credibility of the field in toto. Hmm. Do you think that it's um, a possibility that he ever had a significant 
paranormal experience and that, uh, uh, and I know this is kind of going out a bit on, on a stretch here, but do you think it's possible that uh, this phenomena is using him to marginalize itself, contradict itself? Possibly. I don't know whether he's had a phenomena himself, but I do know mediums who I'm quite convinced did have some genuine uh, phenomena around them and who also were involved with fraudulent activity. So I don't dismiss that possibility. I've certainly seen that uh, in mediumistic uh, cases. Uh, But the whole notion of marginality is far more uh, deep than we've alluded to here tonight. In fact, some of the most interesting theoretical work on marginality involves what's called rites of passage. And these are rituals from earlier cultures. And in fact, much of my work derives from an analysis of African religious ritual. And religious ritual has often been used to control and direct uh, supernatural power. And the concept of marginality is very central to understanding ritual. Now, that's a real big leap, but it's those types of reasons and those types of very important connections that people do not understand. That's why I reject these these psychological explanations. There is something fundamental about ritual about and the supernatural and control, and marginality is central to understanding that. Mm-hmm. Now, that's I can't uh, explain that in even an hour or two this evening. That's uh, a very elaborate, long theoretical discussion. Right. It's not too difficult, but it cannot be introduced easily. Right. But the understanding of marginality is far more than just a bunch of weird people. It is very fundamental to uh, certain religious ritual. Huh. George, what do you think, um, and I've I know I haven't got to speak to you one-on-one very much so that you really know very little about me, if anything. Uh, I did hear you speak at the Bordentown conference. Oh, okay. Well, there you are. Um, I I noticed that, and see, just to kind of preface this whole question for you, uh, I dropped out of this field for probably, I don't know, three to four years uh-huh. Um, some time ago, and uh, have only really been back into it, I guess, maybe another three years. But uh, since about 1987, 88, um, when I kind of woke up to the effect that this was having on my life uh, and some people around me, um, I began to take a very... Uh, well, I guess ultimately became an unhealthy obsession mm-hmm. with trying to find out the whys. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that's unhealthy already to start with. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as you said, you know, not conducive to happy relationships or healthy relationships. Absolutely agree with you there because my wife and I split up for six months uh-huh. during that time uh, of that unhealthy obsession. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have noticed this as you pointed out across the board with some people that my wife, Lisa and I used to hang out with say MUFON meetings or places, other lectures that I would give in DC or around the area, uh, people that couples that we would meet that we'd have dinner with afterwards. 
checking in on them a couple of years later, they had split up. Uh, and, and to a large degree, this phenomenon being responsible for that unhealthy obsession. Mm-hmm. Um, how, does that un- how does that unhealthy obsession figure in uh, to this? What, what part does that play? Is, is that a, a definite commonality, the obsessive nature of what it is? Well, I don't know that it's the obsession uh, itself. I think it's the phenomenon directly. Mm. Uh, and the, ma- the obsession is just one manifestation of mm. uh, the effect. Because this whole marginality and anti-structure can be seen in a variety of other circumstances. Uh, even when people do not have an obsession, uh, you can have problems with uh, relationships. And, uh, oh, sure. Uh, in fact, uh, there's some very interesting work done on uh, Navajo uh, witchcraft that alludes to that. Mm-hmm. Barry Tolkien, Barry Tolkien has written a little bit on that. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily uh, because someone is obsessed. These mm-hmm. phenomena have an existence of their own, and we are part of them, and they are part of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the unhealthy obsession is can be part of it, but it's not always necessarily an un- unhealthy obsession uh, it can be uh, you can be quite functional and other things can happen right um, well I noticed you know I've, I think I've made a concerted effort this go around to curtail uh, my interest to a certain degree uh-huh. uh, I, I don't have a UFO library anymore because most of that was thrown out when I uh-huh. uh, when I, when I you know, essentially came home and 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 put this to bed for quite a number of years, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I noticed that incidentally, a lot of things stopped happening yeah. Uh, yeah. at that point as well. Once yeah. I oh, dropped I into that, routine, yeah. mm-hmm. it was uh, done. Yeah, uh, I, and I notice uh, I have sort of a corporate job. I have fewer things occurring. Even you know, I'm still very involved with this. Right, uh, but it's much more of a structured lifestyle than I lived before. Yeah, uh, and there is a reason Catholic priests are not allowed to marry, and it very much has to do with what we're talking about tonight. Mm. Mm. Okay, okay. And same with monks and nuns. Right, there, right. there are these phenomena that, and when you are in a relationship, man-woman relationship, that mm. is dyadic. That is a structure. Mm-hmm. And this phenomena is anti-structural. <laughs> yes. Yes. Where, where, where do you get that from? Uh, Victor Turner. Who is Victor Turner? Victor Turner is an eminent anthropologist who wrote a, a book titled "The Ritual Process, Structure, and Anti-Structure." It came out in 1969. Huh. This is pretty. This is standard anthropology. It's not very well known. The work of Turner and his concepts come and go. Anthropology and the social sciences are very, very faddish. But uh, these were in mainstream journals and mainstream academic publications. Interesting. Well, I can tell you that since our first show together, I've started asking people who relate a paranormal instance to me, well, what, what were you doing? What was your life like around the time this happened? What were you doing? What were you not doing? Yep. And I've been blown away by it. Uh, yeah. uh, just blown away by it, and and the more that I go back and think about my own things, uh, it's been very much that way. I had a plethora of things happen after I was laid off from a job that I was at for eight years. Yeah, 
uh, boom, just instantaneously. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I did telephone counseling, that's ex- that, I would key into that immediately and start talking about what's going on in their lives, not the phenomena. And you're absolutely right. You know, there would be job loss or, you know, breakup or, or whatever it was. Sure, sure. And, you know, and, yeah, the more you ask, it just happens over and over. I got to, to a degree where I could almost predict, you know, some of the things they were going to talk about, or I would ask them before they would say, and they'd be quite surprised. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that one of the things that's really kind of um, astounding me this uh, past couple of weeks, actually, uh, one being, and I haven't even related this to Jeremy yet, so this is the first time I'm telling anybody about this, um, uh, I, I play guitar. I have a guitar room here that I uh, bought a new house, and uh, since we've moved in here, on the very onset, we, we really didn't have very many odd things happen here, uh-huh. um, which was contrary to the small condominium building, which also figures into that uh, that that whole theory of yours with with people coming and going and more change and less routine in a mm-hmm. in a condominium setting. Um, but since settling down here, we've been fine. In fact, my son very early on mentioned to me, he's like, you know, Dad, it's really neat to live in a house where you don't see things out of the corner of your eye all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, but I would say right about at the six-month point, um, we've had uh, voices in the house. Um, I, this past weekend, Saturday night, was playing guitar in here at about quarter to three in the morning. My son had gone to bed. My wife was upstairs asleep. Uh, or should I say my son had left the room. Uh-huh. Uh, I was. He said he was going upstairs to get to sleep. And uh, I don't really know exactly how to explain this other than I was playing just like I always play. And I'm a metal guitarist, so I play loud um, and usually at a pretty quick pace. And out of nowhere... The back of my neck, uh, the skin crawled up the back of my neck, across my shoulders. I felt the extreme proximity feeling of someone standing behind me. And very much was, my ears were perked to hear my son say, hey, do we have any more Pepsi or, uh, you know, we're out of toilet paper. And... uh, I didn't hear any of those things. What I felt was someone put their hands on my shoulders. Hmm. And when I turned around, expecting to see my wife saying, it's late, it's time to go to bed, you're keeping me up. As soon as my head turned, the feeling left my shoulders, and there was no one there. But the door was wide open, which had been shut moments before. Hmm. I don't think I have ever stopped playing guitar so fast, turned the light out, and went upstairs to bed <laughs> in my life. Uh-huh. Um, there have, this is since the six-month mark. Uh, the only thing that I can put to a change is, uh, you know, dropping into the routine of a new home, uh, which entails some alterations to the house itself. In other words, taking out some cupboards, replacing other okay. ones. Okay. Does yeah. that figure into what does this? Or, yeah, or, yeah, or yeah, yeah. The, the, the construction thing, in my experience, construction sites have weird things. Mm-hmm. Uh, renovations in the ghost investigations, that would not surprise me. Okay. Um, and 
Yeah, I've been on several ghost investigations where there were uh, renovations under underway and stuff. There were other weird things that were happening then. So that could be if and you'll just have to see if there are more phenomena that occur. Fine, this could have been a one-time occurrence too. Oh yeah, it's it's not been in any way anywhere near as prevalent as when we were in the condo. Yeah, uh, it's very. They're usually very fleeting. This this event this weekend was the most poignant, I could say, for me. Uh-huh. Uh, More that's so been, than seeing the woman? Uh, yes. <laughs> because I, yes, and I'll tell you why. Because as I, as I said to you, uh, I was in the chair asleep. And when I woke up and I saw someone standing at the table, uh, I was grogged out. So going by the whole, you know, marginal uh, issue here, I was coming out of a way out of a sleeping state. So could it have been a hypnagogic hallucination? Could it have been something like that? I don't think it was, but I have to, I have to couch that in saying I was asleep seconds beforehand uh-huh. and then I was not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, was it, did it look real? It looked real as real could get. Um, it, it seemed to be my wife with her back to me. But yet my wife came down the stairs, and as I turned back to look at the figure standing at the end of the dining room table, it simply melted into the room. Uh, and I don't know of a better way to describe that. It didn't dissolve or mist away or fade out. It dissolved into the room. Um, parts of it became parts of the room. So um, uh, very strange. But I would say from a stone-cold awake setting... This feels definitely to have been the strongest, at least in shock value. This was it. So, um, you know, I have to say everything that you've been talking about on this show and the, and the past shows. I, I'm with you. <laughs> I, uh-huh. I totally, I totally see um, all of these constants happening. And and <laughs> and again, the only question I have is why. <laughs> so. Uh, and I know, going from the standpoint that you are, it's not a useful question. I mean, we have to. We have a lot more to do. Yeah, I, uh, if you if you address that, I would start with uh, looking at African religious ritual, hmm. uh, and it and the techniques of the anthropologists have for understanding that. And hmm. most anthropologists don't get it at all, but there are some who do. Uh, it will give you a perspective that is very very different. Hmm. Uh, and I guess the um, I guess probably my last question for you is uh, on past shows we've done quite a bit of looking into and asking questions about uh, psychedelic experiments uh, that people have undertaken such as um, Rick Strassman uh, who wrote the uh, Spirit Molecule uh, where people are experiencing things akin to um aliens or non-human beings um and that has uh found a lot of similarities in feeling and in some experiences to the alien abduction phenomena without psychedelic um mm-hmm. the use of psychedelic compounds um one guy in particular T- terence mckenna we had his brother on the show to talk about some of the things that they experienced in south america uh experience it, well going into the psilocybin uh, mushroom experiences and whatnot. 
Um, does that sort of thing, uh, of course, <laughs> if you want to talk marginality, well, they're on drugs, so there you are. That's why they're seeing what they're seeing. Um, yeah, I think Terrence McKenna, you know, said in one of his speeches that, uh, you know, what, what we drug people have that you paranormal people don't have is, is repeatability. And he says, you know, you, you know, they, they call you people crazy and they won't even talk to us. Um, so I, I guess that all does fit into the, the, the marginal aspect of things, but it, it, it does. But, uh, I generally see that, that body of work is leading to, uh, approach of psychobiological reductionism, mm-hmm. and I just don't find that useful. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's basically trying the people tend to start then explaining all these phenomena in terms of brain chemistry or neurology, and that is simply the wrong way to go. It, well, I think, uh, I th- I it's, think... it's overwhelming today, this, you know, looking at the psychology of religion and all that literature mm-hmm. that's coming out. It just is not where the real crux is. So meaning that you don't think it has anything to do with altering brain chemistry to perceive different realities that may exist around us? That's that's simply operating at a level that's, okay, slightly interesting, but it does not get to any of the core issues. Right, right, right. Okay. George? It's a psychological and biological uh, way to reduce the phenomena. It doesn't work. Right, right. Well, Again, George, you're a great guest, <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate you coming on. And, oh, sure. no, uh, I enjoy and talking. This, uh, it's, it's fascinating stuff, and uh, no, I can promise you, you're going to be getting a call again. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, because there's a lot more to go over, I'm sure. Okay, and if you've got any other if further shows, if you've got any ideas on which direction you want to go, let me know. Why are musicians gay? <laughs> uh, to okay, that's that's an interesting topic. It, it's, <laughs> there, there's a lot to that. Uh, in fact, I am going to be writing a lot. In fact, I'm working on three papers now on on magicians and this kind of stuff. Hmm. So, uh, well, shoot, maybe we'll do the magician show. That'll be fun. <laughs> and, and by doing this show and us hosting it, are we all secretly marginal? Well. Well, Jeremy <laughs> is definitely marginal. All you gotta do is look at his video. Hey. I mean, that's slacker culture meets UFO abductions. <laughs> so, Plus, I'm uh, unemployed right now, so I, I completely fit. Yeah, yeah you do. <laughs> Nine to five for this guy. Oh, yeah. my. Yeah, I, I, I've understood this concept of marginality for quite a while, and if I'm going to understand it, I have to live this to some degree. Wow. You, you don't understand it unless you've lived it. I'm quitting my job tomorrow. No, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend that. To, <laughs> if you're married, not a good idea. No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. Alrighty. Very good. Well, thank you again, sir. You betcha. And you have a good night. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Stanton Friedman, and you're listening to Paratopia. Hey, Jeff. Hi. George Hansen, eh? I'm telling you, that guy... I'm uh, I'm sick of him playing favorites. Uh. (laughs) Why is it that 
when you ask why, he tells you where to look for the why. Go to go, go look at African tribes. And when I ask why, that's a bad question. <laughs> he doesn't though. like you. <laughs> I don't like you either. <laughs> We're wanted men. Uh, I've got the death sentence on 12 systems. I think to... Uh, well, and this is strictly from my perspective here, I think any attempt at trying, me trying to have a conversation with George is like, uh, I, I, I mean, you, you know, going into it, you're outgunned. Uh, at least I do. I'm outgunned. Um, I, no, not, not very much. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, the guy has done to get to the point where he is with this. And, you know, like I said, you, you people out there listening, you start listening to what George is telling you to look for, you'll find it. But this is not something where it's a question of belief. You can actually go out and try and uh, try this, this this thing out yourself and see that these consistencies are there pretty much across the board. Um, Would you say and I've consistent? Been pretty, yeah, well, not consistent, but you know what I'm saying. Consistencies is what you're trying to tell us. Uh, consistent inconsistencies, oh, I, uh, I guess, is the way to put it. Um, all that stuff is there. So there's your structure and anti-structure. But, uh, <laughs> Jeremy, watching you drink water is an adventure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, to, to get to a point where this guy is, is taking a massive amount of time and effort to get there. You know what I'm saying? So you're all, you already know you're completely, uh, you're completely outgunned trying to talk about the paranormal with this guy. I mean, he's just, I think he's a, I think he's a treasure. That's what I think. I honestly do. I, I think this guy is a treasure. I really do. I, I just, I, I, and I, that's not an attempt at ass kissing because, you know, we're all marginal. Nobody's got anything to offer anyone else. Uh, but, but I think, uh, I think he's on to something really good. And, uh, but does it inspire me to go look for more? Not, not particularly. <laughs> I, I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie about it. I, I'm relative. To be honest with you, with this whole thing, I guess part of the reason that I've become so relatively bored and offhanded about it is because I'm not really. Um, uh, <laughs> well, Jesus Christ! You look like you're doing a Lipton tea ad. Sorry, I'm, I'm wiping uh, my forehead with my cold glass because I'm warm. I have to shut my mouth uh, this podcast. Uh, I mean, I, I don't read anything about it. I don't keep up on, uh, on the current news of ufology or the paranormal or any of that stuff. So, I mean, I'd say aside from this podcast and what personal interactions I have with some people who are reporting things to me or sending me photographs, which still happens, I really kind of feel like there's nothing more for me to get here. I'm not exactly sure what there is more. George has given me that there is other things to look at, other ways to look at it that are infinitely interesting. But the problem for me is going in his direction, I don't know where I'd go to look for the why, you know, or that kind of like like where where does where does it end? Is this just a useless endeavor to try to gain any understanding of if 
it defies understanding. Well, here, here are, I'll just give you a couple of problems that I have uh, with now. I mean, all the sort of stuff that you see happening in see that does feel good, doesn't it? All the stuff yes. that you see happening uh, in ufology that you just said, you know, people you can go out and look at this stuff. Well, I think that's all true, but um, and I didn't want to bother arguing about it because clearly he's just going to argue with me about it. What are you doing now? Rubbing your nipple with your glass. Fantastic. Uh, and now gay stalker guy on the forum is going to come after me about that. But okay. Uh, in any event, um, yeah, well, uh, getting back to, like, poverty issues, you know, when you say there's this huge discrepancy between what the public interest is and what gets funded, um... Yeah, I, I, of course, uh, poverty issues in Africa get millions of dollars that ufology doesn't get. But in the realm of political things and political issues, people are dying. Of which that is a part, and ufology is not. Uh, right. It does not get funded uh, very well. It's a drop in the bucket, and it's been yeah. a drop in the bucket since the beginning of time. Poverty mm-hmm. issues, right? In the same way that the paranormal has been, you know, in its or- own way, a drop in the bucket since the beginning of time. Right, or so, poverty would, not, would be gone. <laughs> yeah, so to me, I mean, you know, he, what he's describing is just marginality. Period, oh. uh, and I don't, I don't see the paranormal specifically fitting um, its own little definition of marginality in that way. You know, like I think he's he's completely blocking out other things that are marginal. You know, it's like it's just like so what to me in a way. It's like I kind of wanted to ask that. Like, okay. So you've just described, you've just defined the term marginality, so what? Uh, and the so what oh. is, well, marginality plus anti-structure should mean something. You know, like, the so what is then, I think what, what, what I was getting out of it was, like I said, there's this broader reality, and if you narrowly focus, if you put on blinders to, say, form a society that is rational and, and therefore blocks out uh, all the other stuff, <laughs> Uh, then that other stuff still exists, and, um, you know, so you interact with it, and you try to bring it over to your definition of reality, which is not as broad, and therefore incomplete, blah, blah, blah. But he's saying, that's not true. I wouldn't say that. Well, what would you say? Well, I'd say nothing. Well, (laughs) great, I would. Like, I don't don't think that makes me wrong. I don't think that that makes him right. You know what I mean? Right. At the same time, there is that paradox of once you do try to put this in the box, because that then becomes a box, uh, then it does. It's not applicable. You know, it's the same mistake. Exactly. It's a paradox. It's yeah. a paradox, bones. Right. Right. I mean, and this is what I'm getting at. What What are we doing here? <laughs> well, what yes. We yes, and then ultimately it becomes: Why are we? Looking at this now, you're looking at this because uh, a woman rubs your shoulders, <laughs> and that, I mean this thing applies to you. So of course you want to look into this. It's going to look at you whether you look into it or not. I would like to know what it was. Yeah. Uh, why yeah. do researchers look into it? I mean, I think there are answers to these. I mean, why do exopoles do what exopoles do? I honestly do think it's because it's their form of having a creative outlet. You know, um, I. I'm sure that there are some scientists and, and mainstream people like John Mack who get into it for their own various reasons. You know, maybe they f- think it's interesting originally, you know, something to to look at. And then as they dig deeper and deeper, um, you know, they apply their own personal issues onto it or whatever, their own outlooks. 
Well, why they get into it? I mean, could be could be as simple as being thoroughly bored with their profession. (laughs) You know, I mean, that could be it. Um, I I mean, there's I I think there's all sorts of reasons why people get into it, um, including having personal experiences. Um, But you know, let's look at let's go all the way back to Doctor Matloff. You know, who had that. To us, and we've talked about this before, what seemed like a pretty strange, could you call it paranormal experience of hearing what his name called on a bike and it wasn't, there was nobody there. Um, and that, I mean, he's, I think he said that that was part of what set him off on his, uh, his, his journey into, uh, science exploration or propulsion systems or what have you. Um, I mean, you kind of think in the back of your head, well, there had to be more there or, yeah, I mean, I just, that's just, I'm I'm reading this, uh, this book about Chinese ufology and these Chinese UFO sightings take the same pattern as you see anywhere else in the world, you know, and and it's all the Jeff Ritzman pattern of look at me. I mean, Mm -hmm. that really is what it's all about. It's all about look at me. And then when you look at it and you try to describe what it is, it sort of changes up on you. uh, Make sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, this is an, an interesting roadblock that Hansen sets up for himself. It, it would almost be like you could see the pattern of look at me and you could say, okay, that exists. But then you're not allowed to ask why. You're not allowed to ask, well, is that doesn't because does that not imply that there's an intelligence that is saying look at me? Does force in the universe not imply intelligence creating force? In the universe, I mean, that that's action. Uh, things do action. Intelligence creates action. You know what I mean? Like, there, and I guess there's just something I don't get about that. If you're going to say uh, it's not scientific to ask why, well, I guess maybe I should have asked him, you know, then what, what do we use to ask why? I mean, you do use something, right? You don't just say, well, it's not scientific, therefore we don't ask it at all. Because science is a box, the box that doesn't work when you try to study this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so, uh, something in there. There's a question in there somewhere. Go for it. What? Oh, right. (laughs) Ah. Um, Now, um, I think what he's talking about when he says, he doesn't say you can't ask why, you can certainly ask why. It's just that it's not a productive question yet. Okay. Uh, I think he is very much like a scientist who, you know, like like you asked him some questions tonight. He's like, I'm not prepared to talk about that. I don't know because I haven't kept up on this or I haven't read that yet. If you send me stuff ahead of time, I'll, st- I'll study up and I'll know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. That's a rarity in this uh, for somebody to say, yeah, I'm not f- that familiar with it, so I'm really not going to make any statements on it. I think he's very careful about what he says. So when he says the why is not a productive question, I think it's because he believes, and I think he, in a large part he's right, although the body of evidence for all paranormal things, to me, seems to be very large. I think there's very ample evidence uh, by way of Excuse me. By way of experience, uh, throw out all the physical evidence stuff. Experiences alone 
I think there's enough there in mass sightings for UFOs and uh, multiple witness ghost sightings and, um, uh, you know, uh, visual evidence. I think there's more than enough out there to say something's going on, but it's not enough to ask, why does this happen? Or what is this? Or, I mean, there, there's too many variables in there. You know, as I said before, back on the old podcast was, you know, uh, ghosts, how do we know what we're seeing or what we think we're hearing in an EVP is even something that's actually there at that time? How do we know that this isn't some sort of time skip based on, you know, uh, uh, personal desire or uh, focus of intent or whatever to actually interact with something from a hundred years ago? How do we know that we're not time skipping and hearing voices that were literally from the past? Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that that person's spirit exists in that place. It just means that we're in some way uh, uh, affecting our reality, or reality is changing, and we're there to perceive it. So, you know, all the things lining up in the correct fashion for something like that to happen. I don't think we can lay down and say, "What is it? Why is it? Why is this happening?" You know, as far as our thing here with this UFO story, I, I mean, the only thing that I come up with is that is looking at what it's done to me, which is to take your average. I mean, I think I'm a pretty average guy. I think I would say run of the mill, probably for the most part. And uh, I don't think had this not happened to me, I don't think I would have. I, I honestly put a lot of the direction that my life has taken uh, to the paranormal in general. I think that part of the reason that I do what I do professionally is because of this. Um, That creative impulse or drive, I think, may have been born out of that. I don't know that. I kind of think that way sometimes. Uh, The whole thing for me has been to force me to recognize the greater reality that we live in uh, and to acknowledge it as, you know, this is every bit as, uh, we might not be able to lay our hands on it, but it's every bit as real, quote unquote, as anything else is that we we perceive. Um, I don't think that's something I would have really even thought about. I don't think most people think about that kind of stuff. Most people are too obsessed with their daily life to worry about that. I think about that stuff all the time. So that's what it's done to me. So could I say the reason that this happens is is to make people recognize a greater reality or recognize that there's more to life than what we've been led to believe? That's my interpretation of the what, the why. Uh, Doesn't mean that that's what it is. I think George is going for... Why is it there? <laughs> you know, what is it? All those questions he won't get into because he's compiling all of this data to kind of nudge him along that path of of really trying to analyze what is this? Why is it happening? Why do we perceive it? What makes it manifest? That kind of stuff. So I think going from his scientific angle, he's just being insanely careful so as not to you know, not to be the guy who says, hey, by the way, we've got two moons. Uh, and then, you know, <laughs> when we go to the moon, there's one. Um, <laughs> I think he's a really careful guy. So I think that's what he's doing. It's just amassing the, 
he's not going straight for the heart. He's dancing all around it to try and figure out well, what's the heart floating in, what's uh, um, okay, what's surrounding it. That's where I think he's coming from. So for him at this point, why is not uh, – you can ask, but it's not productive. It's great theoretical. It's great conversation. But is it really getting you towards – the answer. It's not getting you towards the answer. It's just it's it's stuff for talk shows. <laughs> you know? It's not addressing anything and laying out a theorem as to what is going on. Why is this happening? That's what he's trying to get at. You know? Conversation to him doesn't mean anything. Because um, that's not really relevant to the study. You know? It's another idea. Great. There's a million. Okay. Yeah, I see that. But I would like to know what what else he could be. What saying. else is not a good question to ask? Right. Well, I mean, essentially, then you've you've got to say that there's a plethora of answers to to why, and therefore we can't narrow it down. So why is a bad question? So what would the plethora of answers be to why uh, setting a narrow focus on a broader reality? Uh, would would create? I mean, I mean, what else is he saying besides that? You know what I mean? Like, what other option is there besides what I said? I thought he was saying, which is um, societies or take the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church uh, builds their temples up on pagan sites and uh, you know native sites and incorporates all of their dogma within the church um, to basically be the one and only um, truth. Okay. Uh, and and so if there are these other truths floating around out there, um, and they're just being ignored because we've we've put on cultural blinders for the last two thousand years, that's what we're talking about, right? I mean, like what? <laughs> I don't understand what the other option is that that he's saying that this why this doesn't answer why necessarily. I mean, I I just I guess I can't see what the other option would be. I have I mean, no idea what you just said. I mean, that factually happened, right? I'm saying that. He, there's this broad world of magical stuff, paranormal shit all around us. Yeah. And then you've got the Western mind comes along and says, well, we're just going to, well, first comes along and says, well, we're going to stamp religion on it. We're going to say, uh, all this stuff is evil. And all, right. the only good thing is this. And uh, to sort of coax you over to our belief system, we're going to incorporate your stuff into our mythology a little bit and just call it different names. Right. Uh, so all that's evil, this is good. So that's one set of blinders. And then science comes along and says... Well, blinders or control mechanism. I well, mean, control mechanism, whatever, the thing that narrows your focus. And then science comes okay. along and says, okay, well, you know what? That's not even a narrow enough... Let's let All that religious stuff is nonsense. Let's just keep it strictly materialistic and rational. Uh, so our, our focus gets even narrower. But meanwhile, it... It didn't eliminate, it didn't collapse all this other stuff in reality because the other mm-hmm. stuff is also real. Mm-hmm. And so now we're seeing this other real stuff that we interpret as paranormal or UFOs or whatever, but it's not. It's this stuff that's always been there that we've just put on blinders to. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that's to me what it sounds like he is saying has happened for the last few thousand years. And that's the reason that there's marginality in this because it's always been this this evolution or devolution, if you will, uh, into collapsing everything down, down, down into singular theory. You know, if it's not Jesus, then it's Einstein. 
whatever the singular theory materialism is. or reductionist yeah sure so what if he's not saying that that's what's happening what is he saying that's happening i mean what are the other options that he's saying to make that answer to the why be irrelevant hmm i don't know ha I don't know. Screw you, George. I, 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 I no, no. I see. I didn't. I didn't necessarily get that he was saying that. Uh, well, that's been his point, right? Was that this has been marginalized since you know even Francis of Assisi was a marginal character, and you know. On, well, I think he was saying it went it went much further back than any of that, even that you know. Being a subjective experience, it's always going to be marginal because it's subjective, because not everyone experiences it. So it's always going to be marginal regardless, and, and, and therefore it's going to be a subject of ridicule. Or that, and this is what I was kind of getting at, I thought I was going to piss him off right off the get-go, was because this phenomena manifests in whatever ways to marginal people, then immediately it's like well consider the source it's a marginal person that it's coming from it's an unknown person uh or or you know a run-of-the-mill guy a working class guy you know i mean how, how many millionaires are abductees you know somebody asked that question a while back and i got really pissed off about it but i thought you know what they're right you know there isn't it's all us unknowns it's all of us uh you know that uh well, then what do you make of Whitley yeah. Strieber? That's what I was tempted to ask him. Is like, here you've got a guy I, I who's successful. Too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what what uh, would make him want to give all of that up to, to become a more marginal character? I don't know. And I don't know that you could consider him a marginal character when he's, you know, a couple of his books, not too awfully, you know, what has it been, two or three years that have been made into huge movies. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that he could be called marginal for this. But I know that, well, he said before that once communion came out, uh, you know, I, I had asked him, you know, going out and uh, and actively searching for uh, these things that he believed that that's why, uh, you know, the, the more you give, the more you get thing. Remember that. Um, do you think that there's any relevance to that? Do you think that's true? And he said, well, that's why my experiences happened, because I was actively going out in the woods to search for this. And therefore it happened. Now. When you look at, uh, well, our interview with him, <laughs> um, you know, he was extremely upset. He was not in a happy uh, 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 way that day. So, I mean, to me, it fits perfect because you know he, he he lost the cabin. He became involved with it, and then the life went down the toilet right, yeah. <laughs> for him. So, yeah, it fits right in line with what George is saying. Beforehand, uh, what was it? The howling. Or Wolfen, I'm sorry. Oh, what, the Wolfen, what, yeah. Wolfen was one, and that was a pretty big movie. Uh, the Hunger was and a big movie. The Hunger, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you had those two, but he said that uh, he had written several novel, novels that were failures. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was largely unsuccessful for a while. So, I don't, I don't know that you can... Um, yeah, but failures in the sense that uh, they were still published. <laughs> you know, what yeah. I mean? they might have been commercial failures. But then here's here's a question, I guess, that you sort of have to vet out, which is, 
um, are the people who are more willing to talk about it, quote-unquote marginal people beforehand. I mean, if you factor in, um, if it's true that people at NASA are seeing UFOs and are experiencers or whatever, or Greg Matloff, I don't consider him a failure. I mean, it just might be that people who are not failures don't talk about it because they don't they don't want to take the Streber plunge into becoming obscure marginal figures. Well, marginal people have nothing to lose. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> it just occurred to me, and this is probably not even well. It just occurred to me one of the similarities between experiencers being those people who are able to visualize so well are. Um, I think I told you the other night. I I read a study someone had done where they said that uh, experiencers were prone to hallucinate. And we're, again, very creative people, artists, a lot of artists, a lot of musicians, a lot of um, uh, actors, writers, that kind of thing. All, all with that creative bend on them. And, you know, when I think of, <laughs> of creative people, you're talking about that despite the fact that we create 99.9% .9 of all the world's art, music, history, you know, culture with that kind of stuff – a lot of it, I mean, creative people, we make stuff up. You know, we we create things. So um, I have to wonder if, if in that framework, would, would George say that artists, actors, writers, all these people who, who, who create vision or create uh, scenarios or create environments, uh, are they marginal just by virtue of being creative people? You know, you're immediately marginalized because, you know, Jeremy's an actor. Jeremy can act in any, he can make you believe anything, you know. Would anyone ever believe? Uh, Jeremy's not an actor. <laughs> well, I'd say you're better than most that I've well, I, seen. I can do improv, so that's probably actually worse. Well, I mean, <laughs> um, I mean uh, for me, is, and I've said this to you before, uh, part of, I mean, I took some photographs back in 2007 that I'm, I'm going to put up on the message board and say, fuck it. But my thing is, I always think of this, is I'm usually the guy that gets sent UFO pictures. What happens when I take some? <laughs> you know? So I'm immediately marginalized because everybody knows what I do. You think I couldn't come up with something? Please. I could fake UFO shots in my sleep. But, you know, there, when I do see something real, what good's it going to do anyone to look at them? Because there's always going to be that suspicion in the back of your head that he's made him up. You see where, where I'm going with this? So, you know, it's that kind of thing. So m marginality in that way, it's not saying that artists, musicians and all are, m m you know, marginal people, but there's always going to be that underlying uh, connotation that, you know, could they be making it up? I could be fooled because they have the skill to do it. Well... You know. you know, you're never going to get rid of that suspicion, and you're, you're right. But as far as um, personally, um, you know, uh, I don't care about that for, for me personally. Like, I only uh -huh. care about whether or not I am hallucinating. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, uh -huh. that has nothing to do with me if I'm telling the truth. Uh, so, and I am as far as I know. And so, because I'm me and, and all of that... Um, I want to know if I can tell the difference between a hallucination in reality and all that. And the two times that I think I have 
well, that I know I have hallucinated. Mm. I knew when it was happening that it was a hallucination. The first one I put in my book, which was like a hypnopompic or hypnagogic dream, whichever the uh-huh. one is where you're waking up, of my mom mm-hmm. coming into my room, tucking me in before she goes off to work. Very right. realistic. Uh, but the whole time, I was even as I was talking to her and saying goodbye and all that, uh, I was thinking, this isn't real. This isn't real. Huh. This is a hallucination. This isn't real. Uh, complete opposite of the abduction, which was, this is real. You know what this is. You, this is. Deal with it. Deal with it. But the other one happened, and I think I did tell you about this last week. <laughs> Oddly enough, shortly after the shrooms. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, within a week of the shrooms, anyway. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was, I'm on vacation and I, uh, I'm sleeping on the couch of this cottage. Uh, my mom has her own bedroom. My sister had a uh, two beds in her bedroom, but I snore too much. So I ended <laughs> up getting kicked to the couch. So, right. uh, while there one fine night, um, I hear what sounds like maybe gunshots or another cottage door slamming. I don't know. And then I hear sirens. And I, I wake up and I look, I turn to the door and I'm like, you know, I'm getting kind of nervous. I'm like, shit, is something going on out there? You know, what's going on? Nothing happens. It goes away. I, I turn back around and um, in, in this cottage, it's all like window doors in the living room. So there's like the front door, which is wood. And then there are those sliding glass doors that comprise basically the entire wall because it looks out onto the ocean. So when I turn back around toward those windows uh, and I, I have the blinds open on them, um, I see, uh, there are these lush trees and there are two sets of, uh, twin star looking UFOs. It looks like two points of light next to each other. There are two, so there's two sets of those and they're flying behind a tree and and I'm getting scared. I'm like, I know what I'm looking at. This is UFOs. This is holy shit. You know, this is happening. And then I realized, well, wait a minute. (laughs) What I should be looking at is the furniture in front of me. And then beyond that, uh, the ocean. There are no trees there. Like, I knew that as it was happening. It just took huh. a second for it to dawn on me that I'm hallucinating this somehow. Hmm. And uh, the next day, you know, I, so I shook it off and went to sleep or whatever. And then the next day when I I asked, you know, my mom and sister, God, did you hear the sirens last night? They didn't hear anything. So I don't think any of that was real. Like, hmm. You know, it might have been a holdover from the shrooms, you know, in, in just brain <laughs> chemistry or something. Maybe not. Uh, definitely the entire week I was a little freaked out sleeping on that couch for whatever reason. I, don't, I didn't expect to be freaked out by those windows, but they did sort of freak me out a little bit. Um, well, let's say it was a paranormal experience. Okay, let's just let's just say that it was a paranormal experience of some kind. Uh huh. You were not in your house. You were breaking routine. <laughs> you know. Yeah, there's all of that, but I'm. Well, I guess my point is, if it's not a paranormal experience, then I very clearly could delineate between between reality and this hallucination that I was having. Mm-hmm. So to me, the argument of well, they're just hallucinating doesn't hold water because in reality, you know, when you're hallucinating, or at least I do, you know, that's sort of my point. Having had the experience of hallucinating, uh, I know the difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the same way that you know the difference between a dream and reality, you know? But, you're right, I mean, is there something, you know, that's a whole other question, was there something creating that? At some point, um, earlier in the week, I was out on the deck, um, just like looking up the sky, and I was on the phone, I think, yeah, with Bill Burns, and I was, 
you know, there's nothing around. It's just complete darkness. And it, the cl- but the clouds were there was like a light as if like reflecting on the clouds, like like a search beam up mm-hmm. at the clouds, and it was like darting around. Whatever this, you know, light is, and there was there didn't seem to be anything underneath it. You know, maybe it was heat lightning or something. Uh-huh. Uh, who knows? But. I don't know. I mean, that caught my eye <laughs> and I know that I was scared, like pretty much not like completely frightened that, you know, I slept, but in fact, just the first night I slept outside on, on the deck. Wow. Uh, just cause, just cause I wanted to hear the ocean and all that. But, uh, right. but for some reason, yeah, those windows, uh, really, they really got to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, completely out of your routine, not living alone, now living with two women, um, you know, and by the way, <laughs> folks, never, uh, never say to your mom when she asks what you've been up to, never say, uh, oh yeah, I did shrooms. Cause that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't go over as well as you think. You think like, maybe I'll have this one moment of brute honesty and answer the question and, uh, nah, yeah, that's your mom. No, dude. Yeah. No, no never. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, I raised you better. What did I, I, where did I that? fail? I didn't get that. I got the, uh, I got the complete silent treatment and to me that's weird that's more psychologically baffling than anything i mean she just didn't say a word about it and kept on going with conversation then i was like and then i kept like just trying to instigate and and kept bringing it up and she would just look at me stone cold you know and not say anything i'm like are you ignoring me how are you ignoring this i'm your son like we're having conversation how is this reality right now (laughs) And she just wouldn't say anything. It was really weird. And then at some point I made a comment about, I don't remember what it was, but somebody else had done something and I made a comment about, oh yeah, sure, you'll talk about that, but you won't talk about the mushrooms. And then she just sort of snapped and said, well, for him it wasn't a choice. It was like, so I guess, ah. that, I guess that was the crime of committing choice. I, I, ah. Wow. <laughs> wow. The act of free will got to her. <laughs> when did she grow up? Was it uh, was she a teenager in the 60s? or? Yes. Well, there you are. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> How do you know mom didn't uh, do the shrooms? No, she didn't. My parents no? were hippies, but they weren't the druggy hippies. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and I asked her, you know, eventually I got her to uh, talk about peripheral stuff. I mean, I, she certainly didn't want to hear about anything I had to say, but um, but no, she had never done anything like that. Hmm. I think it always sure. scared her or whatever. Yeah. Well, rightly so. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> She was right. Uh, well, actually, yeah. when we started talking about it, we saw there was a, an international movie festival. Uh, and there was a movie, I think it was called Priva. It's a uh, an animated movie uh, based on an Indian uh, holy scripture of some sort. And it was really good. It was really good. But the whole beginning of it was pretty much in animation exactly some of the stuff I had experienced. Mm. <laughs> and I was like... Ma, if you ever want to know what shrooms are, it's that cartoon that we just saw. And my sister was like, <laughs> she's like, yeah, that, that's exactly it. Huh. And then, and then, so from there we sort of started talking about it, but I don't know, completely crazy to me. Wow. I'm trying to think back to, I mean, we have a house at the beach and I keep thinking back to instances there, of weirdness. And, uh, I can't really think of any, um, and it is a break from routine when we go, and there have been sightings in in, in at the ocean in Maryland. But I, like you, just have kind of a uh, I don't know, like an uneasy feeling at times down there for no particular reason, really. I mean, you actually saw something or thought you saw something. Um, 
And that, that just makes me think of a lot of other vacations, namely, and I'm thinking of, of those, those breaks from routine. I can think of quite a few drives out to West Virginia to visit my mother's family that I think things did happen. Hmm. Uh, I can't remember very much about them. I, I only remember one thing, which was my, my, I was asleep in the back seat. And I woke up and I was laying there and, and I, I seem to remember a lot of rumbling. It felt like we were going awfully fast. And I remember being a little bit concerned. And, you know, before you learn how to drive, you're not really concerned with how anyone else drives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but when you learn that all of a sudden you're like terrified of how other people drive, uh, or at least I was, uh, this is the only time I can think of in my childhood where my father was driving and I was genuinely a little scared because it seemed like we were really, you know, going back and forth a lot. And then I remember just a lot of white light coming in through the front window and my mom saying, oh, my God. And then I don't remember anymore until we ended up in a McDonald's restaurant or something like a Hardee's or something. And I remember looking between my parents and seeing three girls at this table that were staring at me. That's that's just the only one I can remember. Hmm. I, I, I don't know. Vacations are weird things sometimes. I mean, <laughs> they, they really are. They really are. I don't know why my head went in that direction, but it's probably because it, I'm late and hot and itchy. Um, yeah, for, for all the listeners out there, I pulled up a sumac tree or a sumac bush or whatever you call it. Them things is worse than poison ivy. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this has been the most miserable two ways of my life. I, I shit you not. Miserable. I mean, you don't have any idea. And I don't mean you to don't, laugh at that. But I'm just picturing this giant red rash running up your legs straight into your balls. Well, that's uh, that's uh, almost what's happened. Uh, uh, you know, I say there is a God because it has stopped at my scrotum. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean to tell you, the worst kind of hurt. Uh, I poured alcohol on my raw thigh the other day. And it burned like someone had thrown Kingsford charcoal lighter fluid all over it and set it ablaze. And you know what I did? I went, oh. Wow. <laughs> That's how bad the itch is when, <laughs> when setting your leg on fire feels better. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's relief at that point. So anyway, uh, that's why I was absent for uh, a portion of the interview tonight. <laughs> I had to go bathe myself in alcohol. Um, Anyway, I, I mean, I, I really, I enjoy hearing George talk about this stuff, and um, I think he does have some valid points and and, uh, and and some interesting things to talk about. I don't, I mean, like anybody else, I don't know that I agree with everything, you know, that he puts forth. This, I, I do, I still to this day, I think that part of this is uh, psychological. I think that. You know, people ridicule things they don't understand. That's just a part of life. That's the way. It, that's the way we're built. And uh, we're going to ridicule things that are different or that we don't understand or that we feel are silly. There's a reason for marginalizing of the paranormal subject because people don't take it seriously because the people who are involved with it, to George's credit, tend to be marginal. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, I found what he had to say about the taps bunch really interesting. And it's something that it's like right in front of your face and you don't see it. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I thought that was great. Um, uh, I, I'm surprised he didn't mention the one 
critical aspect of paranormal state uh, that that everyone seems to notice and mention, except for George. Which is what the the guy is a douche. <laughs> huh? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that. Um, if we ever want him on the show, oh wait, we don't. No, we don't. Right. Um, but uh, you know, and, and I think about this other show that comes on called um, Ghost Adventures, and boy, if you've never watched that, now there's a treat for you, folks. I say tune into that Travel Channel Friday nights. I believe at 9 p.m. Eastern, so just at for your for your location about the United States, uh, you will see that the lead investigator on this show is a uh, is is uh, well. Let's say he should be possibly doing a uh, Saturday Night Live skit where they pump you up uh, because he's a rather muscular young fellow uh, who consistently wears very, very tight black T-shirts to show off his manly physique. And as he's speaking to the, um, uh, to, to the I don't know, whoever is – whatever haunted location that they go to, whoever's letting them in to stay in this place overnight um, – uh, I defy anyone to watch that show and say he's not showing off his muscles while he's talking. Like, you mean over here? They were over here? You know, <laughs> it's like, I mean, the guy is, is really posing out, man. And it's like, you watch that show, and it's and I'm, it, it obviously is successful. They're in their second season now, you know, in, in a prime spot on a Friday night. But you talk about marginal? Oh, my God. They well, are marginal. Uh, you know, that, that reminds me. I can't believe... And this makes me question George. Uh, how does he think Greer is an honest soul? Really? You've seen him speak publicly and you think that Greer believes anything that comes out of Greer's mouth? That what I got. Me. But, well, what I got from that was that <laughs> it goes back to the, to the Seinfeld episode. It's not a lie if you believe it. You know? believes it. Well, but the the only thing I the only like excuse I can make for George on that is that maybe when he saw Greer speak, Greer was in his manly serious phase and not in his <laughs> I'm Richard Simmons selling you uh products phase. Right. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> right? Um, because wasn't he that way? Wasn't he like a serious sort well, of speaker and, and all that at some point? Yeah, I mean he, he has gone through a lot of incarnations of personality. Over the the course of time that I mean, since I I don't know two thousand or something as I think is when I first saw him or two thousand one, that's when I first saw him talk in public. But he had been on TV for I'd seen him numerous times. He was on, he was on the Larry King Live at Area Fifty One uh, thing, and I think that that was the first time that I saw him on a really big show. That I genuinely well, he was on twenty twenty C study. They did a special on. Uh, on UFOs, and then C-SETI was part of that, and that was really not, that did not bode well for Stephen Greer and the group. Um, but when he was on Larry King, I think it was the first time, I, and, and to his credit, uh, Stan Friedman kind of took him to task over something that he said. And um, I'm, I'm telling you that, that George is right when he says he is not a stupid man. Because he could say something right to your face that you know is just absolute balderdash. 
And when you call him on it, he'll find a way. He will find a way <laughs> to skip around it and come back at you with it. He'll find a way to get out of what he just said. What he said on Larry King, he was asked, how much do you think the president knows? And he said something beforehand like, well, of course, Bush Sr. knew as head of the CIA and this, that, and the other. Uh, How much the the new president has, and I don't even know who the new president was back then, but uh, whoever it was, he said, um, how much they've been really, how much they've been brief, I really can't comment on that. And Stanton (laughs) leans up and goes, what does that mean? I mean, he was, you know, put off generally by that comment. He's, now, now, right away, as soon as Greer floated that out there, that could mean one of two things. I know something you don't, right. and it's big, or I don't know anything at all. And, of course, his answer was, I don't have any idea how much the president's been briefed, so I really can't comment on that. That's the kind of comments that Greer floats out there. But the way he originally said it, it sounded like... It sounded like the cloak and dagger Greer that we know today. Yeah. Um, well, so, this, I, this you is know... Like- it makes me sad is um you know when when we did when i did the paracast uh grilling of greer um you know we we got taken a task for it and and someone actually wrote to me recently or i think via my you know culture contact blog um basically the same criticism saying well you couldn't you couldn't take down greer uh basically saying uh, he made you guys look bad um you couldn't even take him down Blah, blah, blah. And there was a lot of sympathy, I remember, after the show. There was sympathy for him, even on the Paracast forum. Um, Which is, to me, really sad. It's like, here's a guy who, even if we all agree that he's a fraud, the fact that we couldn't catch him in something blatantly, get him to admit that he was lying, um, means that he somehow won a debate. You know what I mean? Like, I think, like, that's the sort of sick, sad, intellectual... Uh, style over substance thing that goes on in this country where, I mean, how is that even, I I don't even, I don't understand how you even think that way. You know what I mean? Like, in my head, we shouldn't even be having this discussion. We shouldn't even have to have him on the show to try to catch him at anything. It should be self-evident. Right, yeah. (laughs) It shouldn't be a battlefield, you know? Yeah, I mean, there are certain things, again, this all goes back to my original years ago thing that that sort of set me off in um getting into wars with certain people in ufology oh. uh which is claiming that there are certain things that are self-evident if you are at all smart <laughs> and i think that's yeah. one of them you know and then people argue well who who's whose self should it be evident to or who is to decide that and blah 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 and i ugh, i don't know this just raises that once again for me uh, well, hearing about Greer, it's like, God, if this is not self-evident by now, uh, then we're doomed. <laughs> and henceforth, the reason I'm so bored of all this. Doomed to repeat <laughs> failure. Yes. Because that's all that really comes up, you know, so often. I mean... And then Hanson comes in and says, uh, well, you're not doomed to repeat failure. Failure's built in. I mean, that's the whole thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then it's like, well, okay, so what's the point? Then why are we here doing this? This circle jerk of failure. <laughs> That's my quote now forever. <laughs> and there you go. There is the copy for the back of the long-awaited, much-anticipated Paratopia t-shirt. <laughs> That's 
circle jerk of failure. And don't forget to visit George Hansen on the net at www.tricksterbook.com. That's once again www.tricksterbook.com. Go there, read his stuff, buy his book. Do not join the circle jerk of failure. It might be the only way to not join the circle jerk of failure. <laughs>